LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Mike Cleland who joins us to discuss his book The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity and the UFO abductee. One of the most original books ever written on UFOs, The Messengers will make any thoughtful person ask fundamental questions about the nature of reality itself. More than any work in recent memory, it successfully ties the UFO phenomenon not simply to possible extraterrestrial intelligences, but to synchronicities, ancient archetypes, dreams, shamanistic experiences, magic, personal transformation and death. Cleland has gathered together compelling and persuasive accounts from hundreds of people who have had UFO sightings and apparent abduction experiences in conjunction with absolutely bizarre experiences with owls, creatures which have held a place of reverence and mystique throughout history. The accounts of these people, including those of Mike himself, suggest undeniable synchronicities at work. That is, coincidences that are highly meaningful to the persons involved, so meaningful in some cases that they seem staged for that person, and usually in a manner that only that person could decipher. These accounts pose a serious challenge to the standard scientific materialist view of reality, one controlled by a comprehensible chain of cause and effect, in which matter is all that matters, and in which there are no unseen intelligences at work. As one goes through account after account of these meticulously documented experiences, our conventional view of reality appears ever more incomplete. Hello and welcome, Mike, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Today, Mike, we're going to be discussing a book that of yours that was published uh, a little while ago. That's entitled The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity, and the UFO Abductee. Before we jump into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, for the last, uh, geez, five years or so, it feels like I've been full-time doing uh, research and book writing. Up until then, I was working as an outdoor educator in the Rocky Mountains and also in Alaska, spending my summers in Alaska. So I I have a background in big mountain uh, guiding and and instruction. and then I also, uh, before that, I've, my one previous incarnation of my life, it seems like it flip-flops a lot, I uh, was an illustrator. I did um, illustrations for books and uh, instructional books and also uh, did a lot of advertising work. So, uh, And then, and then in, for the last few years, it feels like that's been a full-time job. And it's what's, what has happened is that people are reaching out and contacting me, and I love this, and um, – with their experiences, with their owl experiences, and um, so I feel like I've I've become sort of an archivist for for these experiences and and uh, to try to make sense of them, and then also to share them so they just don't sit there and, and disappear because I feel like these are vital and important these stories. Now, in my recorded introduction, I've tried to 
say a little bit more in detail how your book approaches in general the subject of uh, UFO sightings and abductions and areas of this topic that many listeners may already be familiar with but also even in the title of your book you've got oils and synchronicity so straight away this is not your average ufo book by any means and there are a lot of them out there if you're not only talking about oils and synchronicity in this context we're talking about mystical mystical experiences archetypes dreams and even the nature of life and death itself and your book has actually been described as and i quote beautiful and this is really not just as you say it is you do document a lot of cases but this is not just a plod through of one case after another there's something special about this book and you admit yourself you just be the first to say that there's a lot of speculation in this book and you, this is not a rigorous scientific investigation as such it's approaching in a different way i'd actually characterize it as more of a meditation on this subject yeah, meditation would be good. You know, the, I've been calling myself a folklorist uh, in the sense that I feel like, uh, you know, I'm collecting these stories the same way uh, someone may, uh, you know, collect samples of music in a way. You know, they would, you know, for like uh, there was a fellow who toured the Appalachian Mountains in the 1930s. I think his name was Lomax. And he he recorded the uh, what would be the hillbilly music or the bluegrass music or the folk music of that era. And um, it had a, you know, so he captured a vibe. He captured a mood. And in a funny way, I feel like that's what I'm doing. Like I, I am fully aware that I am, I am researching the curious corner of a much, much, much larger uh, phenomena. The the UFO phenomena is vast and complicated and multi-layered, and I have just picked this tiny little fractal corner to, to focus my attention on, and it has been so rewarding. Um, I thank you for calling it mystical. I mean, I didn't set out to write a mystical book. What happened was I kept on getting mystical stories, and I had to I had to recognize that as I was as I was putting it all together. Well, yeah, in many ways, this subject we're talking about ufo i say sightings or abductions in general has been very resistant to conventional scientific analysis over the years over the decades uh certainly in the modern era you know the 20th century since roswell i know there were some uh, earlier ufo incidents than that um in the early part of the century in many ways that's part of the point it's been very slippery hasn't it when and this is part of the issue with a lot of uh things that might fall under the rubric of paranormal or supernatural because conventional science can't get a grip on it and it doesn't it seems to be somehow beyond their parameters that it's kind of dismissed so in many ways the approach that you've taken is in a tradition of a few other unconventional researchers and writers who've come at this and and just try not just to make it all about hard and fast repeatable experiments and testing and data and results yeah and I mean I it's 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 uh so I've had my own first-hand experiences with owls and and at this point I'm I'm open and accepting to the fact that I've had you have some sort of UFO contact it's a mystery I don't know what it truly means I don't know truly the implications but I have been in, at the receiving end of what I will call UFO contact and um and it so I'm not a, a an objective researcher i'm completely subjective i mean this is my own journey i'm trying to wrestle with these with these big questions you know like why why has my life intersected with this this stuff and it certainly have have had my own owl experiences and that's the genesis of the entire book is these owl experiences so i'm i'm you know i make a joke 
often and I do this I, I, I give talks periodically and I get a good laugh out of this one where people so, so this one guy he contacted me and he was you could tell he was frustrated he's on the phone with me and he's like this bugging me you're not a, you're not treating this scientifically and I my response which I, I gets a laugh I said why do I care I'm not a scientist which is true I'm not a scientist I don't need to there's no rule book that says I have to treat this scientifically I do try to be rigorous in how I, I, I more like I follow journalistic rules rather than scientific rules. Let me say that. And and consequently, what I need to do, and I cannot tell you how many times I have had to type the word, you know, like it seems or perhaps or one might assume or, you know, um, this is speculation. I have to give myself an out because I'm, it's a slippery slope. There are very few hard and fast things. What I can say, can do is document the stories. I can repeat the stories. So people will tell me a story and I'm very, I can't vouch for the authenticity of the story. What I can say is that these stories, I've, I've heard enough of them at this point, there's no way people are making up. Maybe they're exaggerating a little bit here and there, but I feel strongly that, that I'm, I'm tapping into something that is a real human issue. And I, and I jump back and forth, I, you know, there's a modern issue and it's not just UFOs. It's it's a uh, shamanic initiation and meditation. Uh, people taking psychedelic mushrooms will see owls. So these, these, it's not just owls and UFOs, and also um, uh, owls and death are, are have been closely linked all throughout, pretty much all throughout human history. And you can, you know, so the owl is a night bird. So, so you can see where the folklore comes from, but it's playing out today. People are having the same experiences today as they were in ancient times. I mean, I feel like I know the source of these mythologies because they're still at play now. Why the UFO seems to be intertwined with it, I think it would be, it's like an, it's like, it's an archetype. It's an overlapping archetype that is part of our human history. And, and I think these powerful transformative events, right? So, you know, meditation can be transformative, um, Taking psychedelic mushrooms can be transformative. Uh, a shamanic initiation can be transformative, and, and obviously death is the the, the grand transformation. But uh, seeing a UFO can be transformative, and also um, owls seem to be associated with synchronicity. And all of these things can have an impact and change your life. They can transform your life. So I'm seeing the owl less as a oh like a puzzle piece in the in the mystery of the UFO lore. I'm seeing it more as a as a totem of the transformational human experience. As a chronicler of human experience, uh, which is what you are really in this role, and some people would say that's what a journalist does at his or her best, you can't really afford to be necessarily a slave to science because science purports to be the chronicler of, of all, including human experience. But actually, science accounts for, if not none, then virtually none of the experiences that we consider to be the most important in our lives. And I've made the point many times in conversations on here when ev evidence or even subjective evidence has been put forward, um, accounts of this, that and the other phenomenon, and people have, uh, detractors have come back with that's not very scientific. Why does everything have to be scientific, you know, in order to be credible? Now, of course, science is a very important role uh, in, in learning about certain dimensions of reality, but science isn't nothing, but it's not everything. 
Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's actually, I'm, I'm honestly, as a as someone who's had the UFO experience, I mean, the contact experience, I'm like, I'm, I'm like angry at science for ignoring, you know, ignoring, denying my experience, and not only me. What happens when you know when you write a book like this and reach out to people, you end up with a lot of friends who have these similar experiences, and it's very distressing. It is not. It is a lonely, distressing thing to try to come to terms with, and I'm, and I. And I'm not speaking just for myself. So yeah, I'm I'm annoyed. I'm angry at science for turning its back on this. And I've I've talked to folks who are, even UFO researchers who are pretty open minded. And and you know what they say? They'll I had one guy just basically say, you know, I I, I do lights in the sky sightings, you know, sightings of craft. And and he said, part, and I used to do abduction research. And he said, I just took up too much time. It was too complicated. And he's right, right? You know, he's I got to give. I, he was honest. He's correct. It does take up a lot of time. Yes, but then there's these people like me are left adrift. And this so that book, that big blue book, the the messengers, is is my therapy. It was my it was my I mean that's my I was trying to quell the anguish that I was dealing with. And and to and writing that book was a was a was a I guess a form of meditation, a form of self therapy in order to to wrestle with the demons that no one else was taking seriously. I had to take it on myself and, and, and hopefully come to terms with, with this mystery. When it comes to many experiences that we would put under the aforementioned paranormal umbrella, shall we say, you find that when you investigate that the occurrences are much more frequent than you would guess in a reading of mainstream accounts of various phenomena if they're not outright dismissive then they certainly downplay the frequency and the significance of a lot of these things and there is from trivial fairly everyday things like recurring deja vu right through to highly traumatic and possibly transformational events like you know an alien abduction experience whatever that actually is the experience that the person had there is great reluctance to to talk about it, to re- report it. As you found, there's a great desire, a real yearning to, to open up. But it's if that fear of ridicule, never mind going to your doctor or to approaching a scientist or going to the, the mainstream media. And it's like a great um, waterfall, isn't it? A great avalanche when people feel that they can actually speak about these experiences. And reading your book, and of course you did a follow-up book because you had so many accounts in your research that you couldn't fit them all in one book. So you've got a, a follow-up book that's simply, oh, and by the way, here are all the cases that I couldn't fit in the first one. Well, there's plenty more cases. i got a lot more. I could do many. I mean, I have enough cases to do plenty of books. That, the problem is after you, you know, some of them are almost the same. So it doesn't do any good to basically tell the same story, you know, 10 times, 20 times. And I've got a lot of stories like that where it just, they mirror the other stories so cleanly that it, that I'm picking the examples, the best examples. And that second book was, was more, um, what happened in the first book is I interacted with folks. And, and oftentimes this means, you know, hours and hours and hours on the phone or hundreds of emails. And I just, to, to try to research and come to talk with someone about their story is, you know, once they, they start talking, you know, they contact me. They say, I have an owl story. And so let's hear your owl story. And then I hear the owl story. And it's interesting. And, and then there's more and there's more and there's more. And there's such a depth and a strangeness and a kind of chaos in these stories. And I wanted to capture that in the, you know, what happened in the first book is I would, 
I would put those stories in there. They would be all of two or three sentences. And then I would kind of have to move on or, you know, to maybe a paragraph or something. Some of the, some of them are a little longer, but, but I use them very short little anecdotes and it broke my heart because there's so much. And that was the, the point of the second book was to tell a handful of stories. I guess there's 19 stories uh, that are told completely. I feel very thoroughly and very completely personal experiences. And, um, and it's, this stuff is very strange. There's a, there's a chaotic weirdness to this stuff that is, that's difficult to, to put your finger on until let's, you see it as a pattern. And that was hopefully people, if they read the second book, they'll get a sense of that, of that madness that, that shows up. Not madness, but the sense of the confusing, entangled chaos that, that comes up in people's lives. You know, this stuff is absurd. And, and, if, and the only thing I can think of is it's meant to be absurd. Like for some reason, it's purposely absurd in a way to get our attention, perhaps. You mentioned earlier on the overlap here that, that owls and the sort of Venn diagram overlap with UFO phenomena of various types, whether you know that's lights in the sky or sightings of actual creatures or beings or abduction experiences or similar. Thinking about that, about you know, you've probed possible you know theories and explanations as to what, what the significance of this might be, what's going on, one of the things early on that you mentioned is the possibility of screen memories. That is to say, what people may be witnessing is something other than an owl, but the owl is presented to them as something familiar but unusual at the same time. So perhaps you could say something about screen memories in that context. Well, this, this is interesting because, you know, you talk to a UFO abduction researcher and they're out there. You talk to them and you say, do you have any stories of owls in your in your files? And they'll look at you and they say, oh, of course, so we've got, I got lots of stories of owls. And the stories show up where, um, I had a wonderful story. I was in a, a UFO abduction support group, experiencer support group. This was at a conference. And everyone sits in a closed room and there was probably 30 people sort of sitting in a big circle with chairs and, and, um, the woman leading, the, or actually, I think it was, I think it was Leo Sprinkle who was leading the talk this this time, and um, there was someone, you know, people. It was sort of like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, right? So everyone's kind of nervous, a little bit and fidgety, and they're a little embarrassed to tell their stories. But once people get started, it was, it's a pretty remarkable experience to hear their stories. So this one guy in the corner, near the end of the meeting, raises his hand, and he says, "Has anyone here had any odd experiences with owls?" And like literally. Everyone in the room raised their hand. Not quite, but it sure felt like it, including me. And he sort of almost fell out of his chair. He was really shocked. And then he told a story of um, driving down the road at night, and there was a big owl on the side of the road. It was probably four feet tall. So he 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 has this, he pulls up right next to it, and he rolls his window down and looks right at it. It's like tall enough that it's looking in his car window as he's looking at it, and he gets this really strange feeling. He shouldn't be there. And he drives off. Later, he's a photographer. Later, he goes to, he knows there's a nest of owls near his home in the forest. And he goes to this nest and he's got his camera and he's setting up the camera. He's looking through the telephoto lens and he thinks to himself, he's looking at real owls. And he said, I don't think that was an owl I saw that night. And he, he pursued hypnotic regression. And nothing really came up except that the owl that he saw on the side of the road was wearing boots. Now, um, that's very typical. Like in his story, his story, I've heard, I don't want to say hundreds of times, but 
many, many dozens of times, something extremely similar to that, seeing an, seeing a large owl on the road. Later, it turns out to be pr- quite probably a gray alien using some sort of mind control, some, some form of uh, psychic projection to to mask its identity, right? So if you're driving down the road at night and you see a gray alien, boy, that would be scary. And you would and you might panic, you know. So if you see an owl, you're a little less likely to, you know, that's that's something normal you would see at night. Um, here's another story. So there's this woman, she's a friend of mine. Um, her pen name is Lucretia Hart. And so she was 19 years old at the time, and she was working at a summer camp for girls. And she she was very well aware that she was having a UFO contact experience at that point in her life. It, except it had all happened at night. So here it is, bright, sunny day. She's working at a camp uh, in the forest, in the woods. And she goes from one set of buildings to another. There's little trails through the woods to connect all the buildings. And she can actually hear girls playing in the background. Like, he's, she's not far away from anyone. She walks in this field, and she turns a corner. And there, next to the trail, is this gray alien. Classic gray alien. Skinny alien, bald, big black eyes. And it looks at her, and she looks at it. And she gets this kind of reverberating kind of echo in her mind, like like this telepathic communication that is part of the phenomena, like bounces back in her mind. She looks at it. It looks at her. It, she can tell she caught it off guard or something, and it goes owl, 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 and she watches it change into an owl. And it turns around and runs into the woods. And so how do you know like so here's a there's an event where and i have a couple where people have seen the screen memory morph in and out of of from gray alien to, to either owl or deer uh which both of these are very common it's not just owls but there's many things that are screen memories um policemen clowns raccoons squirrels actually are very commonly reported um jesus actually gets reported as a screen memory there's a lot of cases where people meet jesus on like the woods or something so yes that has this this to untangle this, if if the, if the at the core of the phenomena is something that can mess with your memories, that makes the entire process of researching this, especially researching one's self, that much more difficult because you don't know what to believe, what might be true, what might be hidden behind all this. So yes, the the the, the screen memory is interwoven into the UFO abduction lore, um, but what what kind of what was most intriguing to me after I got beyond the screen memory aspect was the real owls that seem to be showing up in the in the events associated with UFO contact or in the lives of people who have had abduction experiences. Well, you spoke um, a few minutes ago about owl symbolism down the ages and uh, its appearance in mythology right across time in many different human societies. You've, the owl has some kind of significance in in, in the culture whether it's associated with death, as you mentioned, or, or something else. But there's something significant and profound about it, usually when it's or meaningful, you know, when it occurs in mythology or in, in, in lore. And I was at a, the ruins of an abbey recently, just exploring and taking a few photographs. And I stumbled upon, there, there was people there doing uh, falconry, but they also had a collection of other birds of prey. Who were, they were just sitting on perches and you could pay a couple of quid to you know have them perched on your arm and get your photograph taken but there were there were a couple of owls there one very little one one enormous one obviously i'd read your book a few months ago so i immediately went across and i thought I'm, i was looking at the owls in a new way if you see what i mean oh yeah and there, there is something uncanny about them just as they are i mean 
not just the swift and silent and sort of seamless movement that they engage in, but the, the heightened senses, you know, which, of course, all birds of prey have, but, uh, you know, so much more powerful than our own in many ways. There's a, there's a serenity about them as well. But then there's something about that fixed gaze, you know, it's unblinking and it's sort of unfeeling, not not in a, a cold way necessarily, but kind of in some way unconcerned with what it's contemplating, in, in, in this case, us. And it's a penetrating gaze, and yet it's inscrutable itself. You know, you can't really learn anything about the owl by looking back. You feel like you're being scanned, actually, is the, what I felt. And you know that there's a fierce intelligence there, and it reminded me of other things that I'd read about ravens, for example. And, and I, I remember one vivid account. I don't remember where I read it, but it was a guy who said you know, he'd looked into the eye of a raven very close up, and he knew he was looking at a deep, deep intelligence. And people who've swum with dolphins and have been very close to whales have said the same thing as well. So it's fascinating to consider all of this in the context of where we see ourselves in terms of life on the planet and evolution, uh, you know, very lazily and arrogantly regarding ourselves as way by far the peak of intelligent evolution. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I, you look at an owl, right? And I mean, we have—I live in the woods. We have owls around. I get a glimpse of them every once in a while. And and um, boy, they, they, I, I can see where the mythology comes from, right? It's not like looking at a deer. It's not like looking at a bunny rabbit. Uh, you're looking at something that has a powerful presence. Yes, you're absolutely correct. They have a powerful presence about them, and and partially, I feel that's the source of the of the mythology. I mean, I, I have to think that the same emotions you went through looking at that owl close up would be the same emotions someone stepping out of the cave would, would have looking at an owl. And and it's correct. I mean, that, that so so yes, there, there are that intensity. And, that, and part of the reason, so owls like um, to their, their eyeball, it's not a true ball. It's their, eye, their eyeball is not, we have a sphere in our, two spheres in our skull that allow us to rotate our eyes and look right and left and up and down without turning our head. Owls can't do that. They have a locked gaze. They cannot move their eyes. They can move their head, and that's why they get that eerie head motion, because they cannot turn their eyes right and left. They have to turn their whole head. So that is a function of, of their uh, night vision, because they need a different shaped eye in order to more efficiently collect uh, the minuscule amount of light at night that they can. So, I mean, an owl can fly in the woods in, in what we would consider complete darkness. They can fly in the woods between trees around branches and hunt in complete darkness or what we would consider complete darkness. There's obviously a tiny bit of light, even in the darkest night, but um, it's, it's truly, they're truly remarkable beings. Yes, you're correct. Yeah, you mentioned about the fixed eye, they're the fixed lens. When you look, as I was prompted to do after reading your book, when you, you then look at the rest of the physiology of an owl, which is a, a bird at the end of the day, so we're familiar with a lot of it, but there's so many amazing things about, even about the owl's head, you know, and about the, the feathers that surround the eyes and what have you. Yeah, yeah, really remarkable. And they're very, it's funny, they're light. I mean, they, they look, the way they uh, fly silently is they just have a, their feathers baffle the noise, right? So they look like big and round. They have a kind of a barrel shape. And they're essentially, if you pulled all the feathers, they look just like, a, you know, if you pulled a feather off a hawk or anything, they're basically the same bird, you know, underneath all that, uh, except that the, the feathers are so thick that it gives them that poofed out barrel shape. And that's those. That's the function of that is so they can fly silently. So it, it muffles the sound in flight. 
let's talk about a, a couple of other aspects of many of the incidents and experiences that you document in your book. And one of the commonalities is strange and somehow altered atmospheric conditions at the time the person or persons is having the experience. Now, this is not this is quite common uh, in UFO and alien experiences in general, but uh, we're reminded once again of it when, in, in the accounts that you share. We talk about, you know, an eerie silence, for example, and there may be other senses involved. There may be unusual sounds. There may be, you know, a, a scent perhaps in the air. But just in general, there's something marking it. There's more than one of our senses are being alerted to the fact that something's occurring. Yes, the, the, this sometimes gets called the Oz factor, this eerie silence. Uh, I think uh, British researcher Jenny Randall's coined that term, the Oz factor. There's a, um, this is very, so it's not just that it's quiet, right? So it's not like you just, that it, that in the, in the presence of a UFO, and it's not, it's not all, you, you know, UFO sightings, but it's a pattern. In the presence of a UFO, it's not just that the craft itself moves silently. It's that everything is silent. There's no crunching of leaves under your foot. The birds and the crickets no longer make noise. There's no rustling of the wind. The, you know, the the traffic in the highway that's close by is you're incapable of hearing it. So, it's not just that that it's quiet. There's no sound. Um, and then I've also many people have told me this that either they feel like they're moving s- slowly, like all of a sudden things feel heavy. They can't like they they're I've you know people I've taught people who've tried to run, and it feels like they're running in slow motion, like a slow motion movie, like they simply can't move fast enough. I've talked to researchers, and they've they've kind of tried to hypothesize around this or try to wrestle with this, where there seems to be a bubble around the craft, let's say, um, and inside that bubble something is distorted. Reality is distorted. Time is re- distorted. It would be very interesting to have all kinds of. Uh, you know, scientific equipment. I would love to have, you know, set up some, I don't know how you would do it, but, um, you know, what is happening? You know, one watch inside close to the UFO, one watch, you know, far away. You know, uh, what would show up? I don't know. I suspect you would get very curious results, but that's the implication is that the UFO itself, the flying saucer, whatever it is, the craft, the orb, often a lot of sightings are orbs, these kind of translucent, bubbly, floating glowing orbs there's this doesn't look like a metallic mechanism it's not a, it's not a it's not a thing in the way like a car is a thing it's like a it's like a a plasma glowing presence that is actually not many people talk about this but the the number one reported form of ufo is a glowing orb and and uh, this can distort time it can well it can distort the sense of time and can distort the sense of sound, and and um, and also people's consciousness. It's very common for people to say, like, I was I was blank, I was unusually calm, or um, all the thoughts in my head, the, the thought chatter, just disappeared completely, and I had this this like mystical calm, like a, like a meditator would have. So yeah, we're we're dealing with very mysterious stuff, and that's that's what I think is lacking in a lot of the mainstream reporting. This that the mysterious aspect of this stuff. Two things jumped out at me from what you've just said. Uh, one is you're saying how great it would be to be able to have scientific measuring devices in place to try and document or measure some of these phenomena as they occur. And uh, I'm always referencing 
popular culture uh, and these interviews. Uh, well, there's a couple of things that sprang to mind. One is a made-for-TV drama, which was originally broadcast back in the 70s on Christmas Day, of all things, called Stone Tape. And that involves some scientists setting up trying to record paranormal phenomena. And, of course, things don't go to plan because scientists have got this very rigorous, narrow way of approaching things. And there's another one, The Legend of Hell House, not the remake from a few years ago, but this, again, is a a 1970s movie. And, again, scientists uh, go to this um, house where strange things have been happening and they decide to stay there for the weekend and they're going to document it. And things don't go well. Surprise, surprise. That aside, the thing you said about running really reminded me of something that I have that occurs often in dreams. And I think this is a fairly common trope in dreams in general, is this need to get somewhere or get away from something and feeling like you're running through treacle. It's a very, very common experience. It's, I don't know if you've had it in oh, dreams. Oh, yes. But- oh, yes. In fact, even when I was saying it aloud, I recognized like, oh, I'm describing a dream kind of sense that I've had. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and there's thoughts and reflections in your book and in some of the accounts that, that, that touch upon dreams. And that lends further credence to the idea that many people have put forward that the reality, quote unquote, that you and I are sharing now, talking to each other, is not that different qualitatively than, than the dreams we have at night, that the dreams are also, quote unquote, real, or they're just as real as this is, or the, the reality that we're sharing now is just as real as the dreams we had last night. So, you know, they're not, they're not two different phenomena. There's, there's overlap there. Oh, yeah. And especially, in the, I mean, that's a question that any UFO researcher should ask is, you know, like, what's your dream life like? Well, how's your dreams? Any interesting dreams? Um, I think, again, but that's, a, I'm not a Jungian psychologist or anything like that. So, um, but I would say that, yeah, that the, the issue of dreams is a whole chapter in the book on dreams. It, it blends back and forth. There's a blurry line between all these things. Yes, exactly. Your mention of distorted time or also lost time is another common phenomenon here where people have an experience that to them feels like it, it took just a, you know, a few moments and they check back into reality, consensus reality again. Oh, and it's like that was five hours ago, something like that. And these are like glitches in the matrix. We're being made aware that there's something beyond, below, behind the consensus reality that we're sharing, that that isn't all there is, or at least it's been suggested to us. And we spoke about dreams a second ago. There's also overlap here with uh, accounts of near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. A lot of things are very similar. A lot of the dimensions of the experience are very similar. And another aspect of it is the more real than real, as it were. That's another thing that comes up. Yes, yes. And that's that sense of that Oz factor. That's something you'll hear. Like it was like oftentimes UFO uh, experiencers will will say like where they are, where the beings are, you know, my interactions with the beings when I was interacting with them, that was more real than this life. They, they, I won, I, I've read so many books, but one analogy I thought was beautiful said, you know, like we're on the flat two-dimensional movie screen. They are in the three-dimensional world in a way that we can't understand. So, uh, and that is, and I've, that is the same thing that gets reported in um, near-death experience. This kind of odd, timeless quality that that um, that defies, you know, where you're sort of living everything at once, kind of kind of 
you're outside of the time boundaries that we have. You've stepped out of the boundaries of the arrow of time that you and I are trapped in right now. Well, that further suggests that there might be something to the the intuition that people have certainly had in the past or increasingly having again. I think that time as we think of it, if not an illusion, then it's only part of the picture. It applies under certain circumstances, shall we say, under certain conditions, and that past, present, and future, as we think of them in that linear sense, that is that the past is gone, it's accessible only in our memories, and that the future is yet to come and is inaccessible, that we're shaping it moment to moment, that's not really how it is. This all gets very theoretical, but that's the sense people have when they step beyond the, you know, when they when they come back. I'm going to say more that we're talking more about the issues of a near death experience as far as um, as far as that. Now, in my second book, the subtitle uh, it's called "Stories from the Messengers," and the subtitle is um, "Owls, UFOs, in a Deeper Reality." And and this is exactly what you were said in, when you brought this up, was that there's this deeper reality at play. So, um, I mean, in a religious context, that could, that could be heaven. In a you know mystical context, that could be the great beyond. So there's all kinds of ways to address that. But for me, right, so I had some owl sightings that were very profound. I've had UFO sightings that were very profound. I've had missing time i've had experiences that sure feel like uh ufo contact i've had uh, hypnotic regression and things have come up that i mean yes the hypno hypnosis is a is is messy and I, it's hard to trust it completely but um you know so i i started on this journey just thinking like oh owls ufos I'll, let me i'll get some answers then and, and what i found is that my entire sense of reality has changed. I feel like I'm less of a pragmatic Westerner and and more of a mystic, you know. And someone, I talked to someone recently and, and I basically, they, you know, like I feel like after all this research and after my experiences, like I live in a magical universe, right? So I have synchronicities are very real to me and they have a deep meaning. This mystical aspect of the UFO contact is something that I is tangible to me. The owl, like we are... And, I, and this is partially the collecting so many stories that I'm left to, uh, you know, to say that, like, we live in a magical world and not many people see that. You just mentioned the power of synchronicities. And this is something that occurs and exists beyond the, the UFO phenomenon. What role has that, does that play typically uh, in some of the accounts that, that you've documented or maybe even in some of the experiences that you've had? Well, I've certainly had a lot of uh, synchronicities. You know, um, you know, so I'm on a journey, right? So this is, this is and, and other people are too. Even It doesn't have to be UFO related. People can be going through, you know, deep meditation. People can go through personal crisis and they can, everyone's life is a journey and we're all going to confront our own challenges and struggles. Uh, there's a researcher, his name is Alan Green. He researches synchronicities, and he's an author too. And he he feels that synchronicities are like, like so if you're out on a boat on a foggy day in the ocean, and you can't see the sun, how do you navigate? You How do you, you can't. So you have to have a compass. So synchronicity had became my compass. At a certain point in my research, I was like, I am trusting this. 
I'm going to I'm going to organize my life around these synchronicities. I'm going to I'm going to if a synchronicity occurs, I am going to pull on that thread and see where it leads. Oftentimes it'll lead to another synchronicity or you know so I was not dismissive of them. I I was I was thoughtful and and forthright in how I address these synchronicities and then it, you know my life did change. I'm my life is completely different. I'm doing completely different work now. It's very rewarding in all senses except monetary, I'll have to say. You don't make much money, but the 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 rewards are so powerful of of just going down this untrodden road, I guess. And so and I've been using synchronicity as my compass in this journey. And I know other people have too. And um and this is something that uh Joseph Campbell talked about too. And I'm I, I suspect a Jungian uh, uh, researcher, you know, someone uh, 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 that was versed in Carl Jung would would say, I, I can't think of any direct quotes or anything from Jung right now, but it's, it's the, you know, he coined the term synchronicity, the modern term synchronicity. And um, I've organized my life around synchronicity. So you asked how, you know, how I've used it or what it means to me. It means everything to me. It's the, It's my North Star in a way. Well, I think synchronicities are probably happening to all of us all the time it's a question of awareness you know whether you notice these things and i think it's entirely possible to stumble through life unaware or dismissive of any any of these occurrences but if you open your eyes the more you look the more you see i think the more open and accepting and responsive actually to these occurrences you feel like they're occurring more often, but I think you're just noticing what's already there. And I think they they do serve a purpose as well, like some of the other experiences that we've been discussing. They're kind of saying, pay attention. Look, you know, look over here, over here, over here. It's not what you thought. Pay attention is the key. That's what I, that's my, that's the only thing you could, because how do you, how do you diagnose, how do you like, you know, analyze the synchronicity? All you can say is pay attention. What was going on in your life at the moment? What changed in your life after the synchronicity? One important aspect of uh, UFO phenomena in general, uh, sightings and experiences, are the phenomena of collective manifestation and also selective seeing. Let's say collective manifestation when there there are lots of documented cases of UFO sightings made by sometimes hundreds of people, like the Phoenix Lights, for example, People say, yeah, they all saying that they saw the same thing at the same time. To me, that's very interesting because so, you know, so many of the accounts that you share are individuals uh, in lonely locations, isolated locations. But also selective seeing is very interesting where you have phenomena that occurs as more than one potential witness, but not everyone sees it. So I think both of those aspects of this are further suggesting, again, something about the nature of reality, about the participatory role that we play in it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like a synchronicity, the, some some researchers would say that we generate the synchronicity, right? The same way that um, if you do a scientific experiment, you can roll dice, right? You do a hundred dice rolls and you and there should be, and you're trying to get certain things. You can actually change, like it should come out completely random and it doesn't. It You know, so we have some sort of power to influence the dice roll or the coin toss, um, and this has been proven again and again and again over the over the 
you know, for the last hundred years in laboratories and things like that, that we have a way to influence reality. A coin toss and a dice throw is very, you know, that's very minor. A, a major synchronicity, I, the mechanism of how we influence reality, I don't understand it. And, but, but I sense it's, I sense it's real. Now, uh, here I'll tell, this is one story. So a woman living in uh, urban Brazil, um, she's in an apartment complex in Brazil, and she sees a flying saucer. She's on her balcony, and she sees a flying saucer coast across the sky. It seems very close. It's right in the city, and it, and it kind of goes behind the building next to her, and she's kind of watching, you know, as it passes, and it should come out the other side, and it doesn't. And she says, she says aloud, like, okay, guys, where'd you go? And at that moment, whoosh, two owls fly and land on her balcony. And they, these owls live with her for the next few months. So this is the kind of, this is, you know, how do you, how do you untangle that? I mean, where, what's the source of what's going on? I, I've given up on trying to untangle the source. I, I'm much more content just letting that play out as a, as a parable or as a, as a story within a story kind of thing. So, um, but these are the kind of things that I'm confronting, these kind of near magical experiences like that, that somehow involve owls and UFOs oftentimes, or owls and death and, you know, but, but the owl has been the main, the main thread in my research. Now it's been a few months since I read your book. Uh, It was actually at the end of last year, but I seem to recall that in the book you speak uh, or say something about individuals who are very convinced that they've never had any sort of uh, UFO or ET sort of sighting or any any experience like that. I don't know how many people fall into that category. As we mentioned earlier on, these experiences are a lot more widespread than you would uh, believe reading mainstream accounts. But you've spoken somewhat about the experiences you've had. For my part, if you ask me, then I would say I've never had any experience like that at all. Never seen any strange lights never had anything outside of a dream that I would call a truly bizarre experience. Um, I have, of course, no doubt you have as well, read accounts or maybe heard from people who say that they haven't had an experience like this, but they'd love to. I've certainly read of people saying, oh, you know, I'd love to see a UFO. I'd love for a grey to appear in front of me. There's some kind of reason, deep-seated or otherwise, why they're feeling that. Yeah, you know, so there's a, there's a, I, you know, that's the why me is the question that every experiencer has. And then, the, you know, so there's a there's a kind of a late night documentary, uh, TV documentary kind of vibe to the to the popular uh, assumptions about UFO contact. Right. You drive down a lonely road, you get taken out of your car, like they come into your bedroom at night and they take people out of your bedroom. Yeah, those those are very commonly reported things. But there's a, there's more to it than that. Now, what I was also running into in the research were these people would have. You know, seeing a UFO is one thing, right? So you see a UFO off in the distance or even a fairly close one. You know, that'll change. That's a, That'll shake people up. That's a powerful experience. And then in con- seeing owls and stuff like that. So I've talked to a lot of people who have seen UFOs and seen owls in c- connection with each other. And I'll ask them, do you think you're an abductee? And they'll say no. Yet they'll say the things that an abductee would say. Now, one of the things that happens, and even in a very, like MUFON is a, the mutual UFO network. I, I think it's all over the world, but it's based in America. And they have um, a, a, like a checklist of things they ask people when they have these experiences. Or they're like when they have these sightings. That's a, the MUFON is a sightings report kind of 
kind of organizations. So they have a checklist and it's, it says, you know, what time was it? Which way was it traveling? Can you draw a picture of it? You know, where's the closest airport? Very, very normal, pragmatic things. Um, but they also ask in this form, they say, have you had any psychic experiences since your sighting? And this is interesting because even a very dry institution like MUFON recognizes that people are having it. That's a question I ask, you know, has your, what are your psychic abilities? Have they changed since your sighting? So people are having these things. So, yes, if you wish to see a UFO, you better be ready for all the the other stuff that comes along with it. The, you know, the, the, the heightened ESP. Um, And oftentimes people will report healing skills. Like after seeing a UFO, they will report taking up Reiki therapy or something like that. Earlier on, we spoke about sort of owls in culture and folklore and mythology. There's also, when you go looking for it, there's a lot of owl appearances in popular culture, books, TV, movies, and what have you. Some of it probably very deliberate because of all the, you know, the significance and the baggage that, that the owl has taken on, what it's a symbol for. And um, maybe it's just, you know, it's, there's a death in the story, in, in the movie, in the TV show, whatever, and there's a you know, shot of an owl. And it's just a little motif, as it were. But there's a lot of it there when you go looking. In fact, almost the day that I finished your book, I went to a screening of the classic Bride of Frankenstein, the original black and white movie. Oh, it was yes, like a, yes. It was like a sort of vintage movie thing. And I hadn't, I hadn't seen the film for like 30 years so it was all coming back to me, and I thought, oh, yeah, this is one of the better ones. It might even be better than the first one. And then at some point, and I can't remember what was actually happening in the film, but there's just it's just a still. It's not a still as such, but it just something occurs in the film. Oh, yeah, I know. I can just, tell. It, yeah. it, it just cuts to the aisle. And I'm, I was like, whoa, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, so there was, the scene was that the, in the end of the first Frankenstein, this is a sequel to uh, Bride of Frankenstein, it's a sequel to Frankenstein. The, in the first one, they burn Frankenstein down, the monster. They burn him in the, in the, in the mill. They light the mill on fire, and it's, it's a wonderful cinematic scene from a 1930s. So in the remake, or in the, in the sequel, like he fell through the floor and landed in the mud and the water at the base of the mill. So the, the, the mill is empty. It's all burned down. And a woman um, is peeking around there and she falls through the floor of the old burned up mill and she ends up in the, in the, like the, the puddle in the basement and she confronts the, the Frankenstein monster and she screams and there's the camera sort of cuts away as he, he's killing her. He kills her. He's like, she, he wants to stop the screaming and he's, you know, so he kills her, and at the moment that he's killing her, the camera cuts away, and it shows an owl in the in the basement there, you know, right next to them. So perfect. There's nothing, you know, sinister. I mean, there's no there's no conspiracy there, right? So the filmmakers were very aware of the lore of the owl in connection to death. It shows up in Shakespeare. It shows up all the time. If you want to do a spooky movie, and little kids, especially, you know, like if they're walking around the woods at night, if you want to make it spooky, you just you just include the sound of a hooting owl off in the distance and the, and the kids will correctly go, oh, ooh, you know, this is a scary scene. Now, so present day in popular culture, the the book, the, the series of books that has sold more than any other books in a series in the history of mankind is Harry Potter. Now, Harry Potter, this is they're having right now a popular book in our present lives, Harry Potter has an owl that delivers the mail. Now, this is, this is perfect. The owl as a messenger shows up. So the owl has several totems, in, but one of them is the messenger. So they fly. They, the owl can fly in the night, that very 
easy to turn that into a metaphor of flying into other realities. The owl can fly to the land of the dead. It can fly to the land of our ancestors. And, and it needs to return. So it comes back with a message. Uh, the, and, and the owl's delivering the mail. It's perfect. It's perfect, the owl as messenger. Now, take that one step further, and this is a little more playful on my end, but J.K. Rowling, if you spell her name out, has owl right in the middle of her name. Um, I mean, I think that's a kind of little fun, playful coincidence that I, that I, I love, and I include them. And I, a lot of people give me a hard time for including those kind of things. They say, oh, you can't include that. And I'm like, well, it's fun. I can include it. So, um, yes, we are, we are, our present day, and you know what? Actually, that since the book has come out, uh, there's a, there's a TV series called, um, Project Blue Book. I think it's just called Blue Book. And it's, uh, it's a kind of an X-File-y thing, and it takes place in the 1950s, and there's UFO investigators working for the government, and the one character, J. Allen Hynek, is based on a real character, and the, the, the movie is, com- or the TV series, the episodic television series, is complete Hollywood. It's not really based on fact in any kind of meaningful way. But there's a scene where the UFO flies over the car, and the car, you know, the like, lights blink on and off, and they get out of the car, and the, the two UFO investigators watch this sort of glowing orb pass above their car and fly off into the distance. And as it flies off into the distance, it's at the very end of the episode, you know, they're in the forest and it goes across the farmer's field and it just drifts off into the distance and everything's, you know, calm again. And there's a hooting of an owl. And I've had so many people contact me and say, they did that on purpose. They read your book. They did that on purpose. So, um, like, I don't know if that's the case, but it, but that was very intentionally put in there. So there's an owl and UFO within the last few weeks of modern television. Well, whether there is any truth to the reality, to the idea of the the owl as one manifestation of screen memory, as we spoke about earlier, that it's kind of covering up something else that's actually there. Here we have the idea, once again, of the owl as a harbinger to forthcoming events or a witness or participant in highly charged significant events, significant moments. Oh, yes, yes. And that's that's the question I ask. And people tell me they've seen an owl. Like, what was going on in your life? Like, here, I'll tell you the one. And I, this guy, I'll, I'll be cautious how I tell it. He hasn't really given me permission to tell this. So he's in, an, in his, uh, he's got an orchard. He's in his backyard. He's got an apple orchard. And it's, the orchard is right next to the woods. So he goes out to meditate. And, and it's a lovely spot. He's meditating outside. And he hears this noise. And he, he, it's like scary. It's like a creepy, scary noise. And he's, his every instinct is like, I got to get out of here. This is a creepy noise. And he goes, no, I'm going to go in the woods and see what it is. So he goes into the woods. And there's an owl that flies right up to him and lands on a branch very close to him and gives him this like, like talking to. Like it squawks at him and gives him the evil eye. And it, you know, like yells at him, basically. He, felt, he said it felt like it was yelling at me. It felt like I was, he was chewing me out. And if eventually flies off and he runs back to the house and he tells his wife and kids and the, the, everyone in the family is like, yeah, so what? Big deal. And um, he's like, you don't understand how powerful and significant it was. And he's like, wait a minute. Why are they so – did I really see it? Did I really see it? So he grabs his camera and he goes back into the woods and he says, my wife and kids don't believe you're here. I, I, can you – I need a picture. And the owl flies up. Didn't get as close the second time. Come flies up and he gets some pictures of this owl. And they're beautiful. It's a beautiful barred owl, and the barred owls are very. I, it's a North American owl. It's loud and got this. It can I can I've heard it before. It's a, got a crazy squawk. Um, and I asked him, "What were you meditating on?" And he said, "Well, I was meditating as if there is a God." 
and I'm like, wow, that really made the story. That really changed the flavor of the story. So, so, and then I said, what was going on in your life? And he's like, well, I'd been through all this shamanic stuff and I'd been doing this sort of wondering whether I should go down a shamanic initiation. And he'd been having like a rough go of it because it, some of the stuff seemed a little fraudulent and, you know, some of it. So, and I'm like, so that this is like, what was going on in his life. He was looking into shamanism. He asks if there's a God and it just, I just can just, it's just such a playful thing. Like, is there a God? And then it's like, I'll gives him like a harsh talking to like, how dare you ask that question? And I just love that story. I just think it's so beautiful. And he recognizes it too. And that's the reason he reached out to me. So yeah, I, this is we're we're confronted with a very powerful mystery. And it's, it's, it's just got this mythic, I'll actually say playful aspect to it too. Uh, it's a slight digression, uh, going back to something I was saying earlier, but I suddenly remembered that in one of the Mad Max films, the post-apocalyptic uh, collapse of industrial civilization flicks, I think it's the first one, but there's a point when someone dies or is killed, and rather than just see the final end of that, it cuts to a shot of a raven. You see its eye and you see it flapping its wings. And the message there is, is very, very similar. And I know I mentioned ravens earlier in terms of inscrutable intelligence. Well, the raven would be the owl of the day, and the and the owl would be the raven of the night. So, yes, yeah, so ravens come out during the day. They have very similar mythology, bringer of messages, portents of change. Some The owl in many cultures is a portent of doom. So, yeah, so this is... This is uh, you know, the, yeah. So, so there's lots of animals with strong, strong symbolism that show up in, in uh, you know, popular culture and things like that. Sure, sure. You also mentioned in the book at one point owls uh, appearing around the the Hadron Collider at CERN in Switzerland. So, just thinking about it as uh, as appearing at significant times and locations. Well, this is I actually played this little segment up for for jokes, and everyone. It was funny. It was in the news, and everyone kind of touched on it too. Every so, what happened was. This is so there. There's an outdoor eating spot where they eat lunch, right? And ne- right near there, there's like some. You can imagine like the the electrical stuff that's going in. So there's a fenced off area that has uh, like all kinds of electrical uh, capacitors and transformers and equipment. So um, it's France. So they're eating bread. They have a baguette and and an owl swoops down, grabs a piece of bread, flies up, and drops it into the the electronics and it lands in just the perfect spot to close the whole CERN thing down. So they can't run their experiment. And in my, and I playfully said, and everyone did every commentator sort of like, well, you know, like there was, they were obviously just about to do the test that would have like opened the, you know, the, the doorway to annihilate all, all reality or something like that. So yes, it was a, and then that to be fair, there's also other reports in the news that said it wasn't an owl, it was a dove, which is just as significant in, in its, you know, the dove is the, is the totem of peace. So either way you look at it, this is, it's, you know, an, a totem grabbed a piece of bread and stopped the Hadron Collider from performing what would have been one of the very first experiments. This was very first on, very early on in the, when they were just starting the, that big giant contraption there and on the, I think it's on the Swiss French border. Well, as we begin to bring things to a close today, Mike, we've touched upon this already, but perhaps we should say a little bit more, speculate a little bit more about the potential purpose of 
some of these experiences that people are having. You've spoken about how your life has changed as a result of paying attention to synchronicity and having some of these other experiences. And, and of course, in your book, many of the people that you speak with talk about their experiences, and it really has changed their lives, in many cases for the better. Now, some of the experiences have been quite distressing and, and even traumatic, but there is the idea commonly running through UFO uh, sighting and abduction stories of transformation through trauma almost UFO abduction as a spiritual path. I was reminded of the story of uh, Whitley Strieber and, and how his life was changed utterly by what happened to him. But the question then is, if we, if someone's life is ultimately changed for the better, is that s- suggestive of a purpose for the experience? That is the question, isn't it? I mean, that's the grand question. You're like, what does it all mean? Why is it here? Yes, so the, if... The, and I in the and I have I have to do this off the top of my head here, but in the in the second book in the introduction, I, I kind of go through a little checklist, like you know, because people would ask me like why owls, what's why, and I would go I don't know, like could be a lot of things, and I that wasn't working. <laughs> a couple of people kind of called me on that, like you got to have you got to be able to answer that. So I can speculatively say a few things. One, it's an alarm clock. Owls are an alarm clock. Let's just stick just with owls. I mean, you could say the same thing for UFOs. You could say the same thing for a powerful synchronicity. Owls are alarm clocks. They're here to wake us up. And then I would say, this is almost the same thing. They are here to announce initiation. I had someone say that to me. They were channeling. They said, owls are here to announce initiation. And that was essentially the same thing as to wake you up. But it had a, you know, right, so like in a, like a like a young Catholic receiving the Eucharist for the first time, his first Holy Communion, you know, there's a, that's an initiation. And then you know, a religious scholar would would argue that this these these changes, the initiate, you know, the initiate is changed. You know, the scholars would say no, it's just a metaphor. But the believers, the true believers, would say no, the change would be entirely real. So I like that. And then owls' archetype would be another thing. You know, what does it mean? The owl is the owl has a hidden meaning. Now, what an archetype might mean is like a bottomless pit. And I think philosophy professors and uh, argue about this late night at the bar. But I, I they may never have an answer to that. But somehow, at a deeper level, the the owl is a symbol of something that we all know at an intuitive level. And then it's the th- the last one would be what I told before. The owl is the totem of the transformational experience. So we, all of those things taken collectively, the owl has a power. You know, someone said to me, um, I said one time, a friend of mine was sort of hearing me out, and, and I said, you know, I think UFO, and this is what I'm getting, this is one of the questions I ask people who have UFO contact experiences, do you have a lot of synchronicities? And then most of the time they just roll their eyes like, oh, you have no idea, my life is, my life is flooded with synchronicities. So... You know, I, I said, you know, I think UFO experiencers have more synchronicities than rest of the population. And this woman looked at me and she looked at me like I was completely a fool. And she said, anyone on a spiritual path will have synchronicities. And then from that moment on, she was she was correct. And from that moment on, I have equated the UFO experience as a spiritual path. I may be completely wrong, but for a th- thought exercise and just for my own just a way to hold it in my mind. I have equated it with a spiritual path. There's two different kinds of people, right? Two different kinds of UFO researchers. One, you know, you start talking about UFOs and you keep talking about UFOs and you talk about metal and UFO sightings and and, uh, airport reports and and burn marks in the yard. And then there's another person you talk to and it doesn't take long. If you start talking about UFOs, lights in the sky, 
any thoughtful person should very quickly be talking about what does it all mean? Why are we here? Where are we going? So I can't remember who it was. There was a UFO researcher and said, UFOs are here to make us think. And I would amend that and I would say, UFOs are here to make us think more deeply. And I, and I really mean that. Yes, that's what the, the impression I've come away with from many years of reading about these topics. And it was confirmed again, reading your book and the accounts of the people that you spoke with, that the intention here seems to be to sort of open our consciousness to that wider reality. Prompt us to ask the big questions, to, to ponder these profound possibilities. For me, there, there's so many other things like this, like crop circles, for example. It's making us stop in our tracks and just go, what? is this and it seems that particularly at this time i would say of course what we would recognize as ufo type phenomena being documented back thousands of years you know like strange fiery objects in the sky and what have you but it seems that there was a manifestation that really picked up pace during the 20th century that seems particularly relevant to our time and i think these phenomena from just beyond the limits of our five senses have always been there and I think that the manifestation that they take shapes itself to the age that it's in, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Harry Potter showing up in, in uh, you know, is tied to owls as well as, you know, we're not seeing angels in uh, the Virgin Mary. We're seeing metal spaceships and, um, you know, little beings in, in tight fitting kind of uniforms exactly exactly so uh each thing evolving and changing as we do but always with the same fundamental message the same fundamental prompting and also responding to the the the, the depth of the need of the time that we're in and i would say that there's a lot of ufo sightings right now and you know you could say well perhaps the world is in trouble perhaps we're in a troubling time which i'm certain we are i mean the 20th century was a nightmare as far as number of wars and tragedies and yeah so i agree well just uh on the closing thought on the the back of your book there's a little quote a little mini review from nick redfern um who's the author of men in black significantly enough and he uses the word um intended quote unquote that he's basically saying that whatever this phenomena represents that it's intentional not only that we are experiencing this for a reason, but in fact that your book, <laughs> that you're a part of this, that, you, that it was intended that you would write this book and that in some sense you're a channel or a conduit. Well, yeah, you know, it's funny because I, uh, I, I actually hired him. He's beyond other things. He edits, you know. So I hired him and I said, listen, I, this book, I'm a little, I got kind of into a dead end. And I said, I need some help. Can you just read the working draft of the book? And he did. And he made some just absolutely pragmatic things. He said, oh, when, at the end of this chapter, just include a little bit more here. So it leads into the next chapter. And very, very simple stuff like that, you know. So, and then, and then in the, like, then in the letter, he just basically drops this thing. He basically says, oh, you know, this is, this book was, meant to be written you were meant to write it it was like in essence channeled by you and in a funny way i was like he was my heart kind of sank because he articulated something that i sensed very strongly now i've talked to i've told this to other people 
other authors. And I said, you know, this book kind of wrote itself. It was just like magic. I would be like at a dead end and I would need a little something for a chapter. And then boom, the email would ping and it would be the perfect story. That happened over and over again. Everything just fell into place. I mean, it was a lot of work. Yes, it was a tremendous amount of work. But like things were magically landing in my lap. I had owl experiences that, that set me down this path. And he said, he put into words what I sensed. And it and it was. I'm glad he said it because I'm I'm like, I'm from Michigan, which is in the Midwest of America, and we're all very polite. And I'm just too polite to say it myself. So I'm glad he said it, so I didn't have to say it myself. Um, but I, I, that's my very strong sense that I, there's absolutely no way to prove this, and there's no way I can back it up. But it feels like this book arrived through magical means, and I was the conduit. Today we've been discussing your book. The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity, and the UFO abductee. Pretty much the final question I had lined up for you was to ask if, even though knowing the answer was yes, but asking if and how these experiences, your your own and those of others, had changed your life. You've already answered that. Well, for my part, having said earlier that I do not consciously feel I've had any experiences like this, they have changed my life other people's experiences have changed my life anyway just by reading about them. And I think that not everyone has to have this firsthand experience. I think we as a species in our inter- interconnected way can definitely empathize and, and feel what others are experiencing and take something from that. So this is why I would urge people who are interested by this discussion to read the book. Now, the book's available everywhere. It's been out for quite a while, so people can find that very easily. Before we go, just uh, tell listeners anything else you'd like to put out there, details of your website, anything you might be working on, anything that might be in your future. So if you want to get a hold of me, you can just, you know, one of the ways to get a hold of me is just Google UFOs and owls, and I am the first thing that comes up. And then I'm about the next 15 things under that. Uh, you can type in my name, Mike Cleland, and uh, owls, it'll come right up. And then, uh, or my blog spot is uh, Hidden Experience, and that's where I've been archiving a lot of stuff. That's a lot of the collections of the stories that took place in that book were originally blog posts. Um, and on my desk right now, I'm working, and I'm very, very close to being done, is a collection of blog posts that, in a way, is my tells my story a little more completely. My awakening experiences and things like that are told through the blogs, which is interesting because there's kind of an immediacy to the blog. Some of the events, you know, pretty much begin. Here's something that happened last night, or just now. This happened just now, and I'm typing it up. Uh, and that, so there's, it's, I'm, I'm happy with the way that book is turning out. Yes, so the book has been very easy to get. The, the, you know, what I'll say is the first book was my therapy. And then the second book, I worked with other people. And it wasn't everyone in the book, but I would have to say a handful of people in the second book. I was the therapist. Like, in writing their story, they were like kind of non-believers about their own experiences. And then I wrote their story and I worked with them and I said, you read it and get back to me and let's go back and forth and I want this to be accurate. And then and then by the end of just reading what I wrote about their lives, they were like, you know, this I, these experiences are real. And it's through your writing that I I've, I've, can finally say that. I cannot tell you how much, how serious I took that. So that is a long answer to a very simple question. But yes, the books, I, I'm... People have been very happy with the books. And, I, and if anyone has an owl story, it doesn't matter if it's connected to a UFO, please get a hold of me. I love hearing them. I'm trying to archive them. I'll do my very best to get back to you, but I'm, I do get a lot of letters. Splendid. Well, Mike, once again, 
Thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're very welcome. It's my honor.